This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The core of change is learning, which is ironic. Our institutions of learning are slow. Some might even say immune to change. Valeria Tellez interviews Julie M. Wilson, the author of The Human Side of Changing Education, How to Lead Change with Clarity, Conviction, and Courage. When we ask schools to change, we are asking human beings to change, and this requires special tools and a human-centered approach. Change the heart of the system by enabling the hearts and minds of those who make schools work. Learn to make sense of challenging change journeys and accelerate implementation with this practical framework that includes human-centered tools, resources, and many case studies. Understand why resistance is to be expected and how to get through it. Discover three different kinds of change strategies and when to use which one. Learn how to use the messy middle of change where real transformation happens. Julie M. Wilson is the founder and executive director of the Institute for the Future of Learning, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping transform the one-size-does-not-fit-all model of education. She has over 15 years' experience building effective learning environments that unlock human potential and enable organizational culture to adapt and grow during times of change. Julie graduated from Harvard's Graduate School of Education with a master's degree in technology, innovation, and education. Her book, The Human Side of Changing Education, was published by Corwin Press. Meet Julie at the-ifl.org. Here is the interview with Julie M. Wilson. In your own words, who is Julie M. Wilson? <laughs> Julie M. Wilson, well, the M is important uh, because I was, my middle name is, uh, I was called after my Aunt Margreta, uh, who basically raised my mother. And my mom's mom was also called Margaret. And on my father's side, my grandmother, her name was Aunt Margaret. She got called Rita as well. So I feel like the M stands for all of the great women who have gone before me in my family. <laughs> Wonderful, beautiful name, though. So there's anything else you'd like to add about who you are? 
Sure. Well, I guess, you know, I, I was raised on a farm in Northern Ireland. I have three brothers and mom and dad always supported my education. And uh, my dad in particular told me to, to take it as far as it would, as, as I possibly could. And I've always I've described myself as a learning junkie. So I love learning uh, and education has been very good to me. And at the same time, it's a lot of change that I think needs to happen to help us thrive in this wild and crazy world in which we live. So uh, I, I come from a, a love of the education system as well as a, a deep respect and a knowing that it needs to change and transform. So this is the topics we are discussing today is in your book, The Human Side of Changing Education, How to Lead Change with Clarity, Conviction and Courage. So but before we talk about some of these topics, let me ask you these warm up questions, as I mentioned, off record. What does it mean to be a human being from your perspective? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, right. Two o'clock on a, on a Thursday afternoon. Right. <laughs> I, I think as I get older, I'm realizing it's embracing um, all that life offers us. And it's not just this eternal pursuit of happiness or joy, but the, uh, you know, the difficulty and the hard times uh, that there is incredible there's incredible value to really sit with that and embrace that. So it's really that incredible breadth and depth of human experience. If we can really embrace that with faith, then I think that brings out our true human beingness, if that makes sense. What is spirituality to you? Uh, well, I grew up in Northern Ireland and, you know, you start with the word religion and I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and that was during the height of the Troubles, and you were either Protestant or Catholic, and that's where the conversation uh, started. But since then, and I rejected so much of that, uh, since then, and having lived in different parts of the world and uh, had a few dark nights of the soul, uh, for me, spirituality is believing that there is a force greater than all of us and there is a, a grand design if you will there is a greater design of of possibility and i, I do believe uh, the saying that we are spiritual beings in a human body and it's our mission in this lifetime to bring your soul's desire and your heart's desire together and to understand that we really are intimately interconnected and you know it's, it's interesting living and working in america where it's such an individualistic uh, structure and i'm becoming becoming more aware of just how uh, that has impacted my worldview and how it's just one and arguably a very limited way of viewing the world so i think spirituality really brings up this whole concept of we are all one and Nothing like a global pandemic to underscore mm. how we are intimately connected with each other. The pandemic, right? 2020 has been a time of change, challenges. What have you learned from 2020, Julie? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still, still trying to unpack that. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I think one of the yeah. sort of lessons that's really springing top of mind is 
I, I, I tend to have a very fast pace and I've always really enjoyed and loved my work so I can work, work, work. And that, yeah. that, that, that gives me energy. But something shifted for me this year where uh, I had, had some health issues and this overwhelming sense of exhaustion. So I think what I've learned is that if you slow down, it doesn't mean that nothing's happening. Sometimes very much the contrary and the slowing down and the rest is as important, if not more so, than the doing. What is your definition of power? It's a great question. Definition of power. Yeah. For me, I guess it's getting up in the morning and deciding exactly what I want to do. (laughs) Just making that decision or actually doing, going all the way with that and making that happen. Yeah, I guess that would be exercising your power at that Mm. point. It's um, their power for me is intimately linked with agency and it's and it's part of you know, what brought me to education, which is, is it possible to design and build a life of your own choosing, right. regardless of demography? And I believe if we spend 12 years within a system of education, that that should be possible, but it's too often not for too many children. Right. So I would love children to graduate from high school with a sense of, not of an external power, but an internal power, mm-hmm. a capacity to act, uh, agency, mm-hmm a self-direction, if you will. What do you think is the purpose of the human experience? I think at a super, super, super high level, yeah. it's to love and to be loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think about what people have shared in those you know, well-publicized interviews um, of people on their deathbed, yeah. it's the biggest regret is often not having loved enough or told people that you love them Uh, in in addition to taking risks and doing the thing that your heart was telling you to do but we've got so many natural and very understandable fears uh, to do that but I think the greatest fulfillment really does come from deep love and that of course starts with oneself love we all have our own understandings of what love is what is your understanding of love mm, another juicy one it's it's an it's i'm about i'm going to say selflessness mm. but it, but it's not that selflessness where somebody's saying i don't matter it's right. all about you and your needs right. uh, it's some really intricate interplay, I think, between a really solid grounding in yourself, but being entirely selfless with the other, if that makes sense. That sounds almost like uh, the idea of uh, unconditional love for ourselves and others, blind that. In. Is that a realistic goal, to strive for unconditional love? I think so. I, I think at, at the core of it, it's understanding that You've got your soul and you've got your ego. Yeah. And if you can, if your soul can see the other soul, mm. then, then that is love and understanding there's this ego and this human experience that can sometimes get in the way, sometimes elevate. Uh, yeah, yeah. What do you love most about being a woman? 
I don't know if this is a female thing or not, <laughs> but I yeah. love, love, love my bath and sinking into a bath of Epsom salts <laughs> and feeling that yeah. energy. <laughs> and there's just, a, I, I can literally just feel everything in my body relax whenever I do that. And I can feel yeah. you know, the energy in my hips and I can feel that strength and that, that fluidity. And as again, as I get older, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I've been such a, a pace setting kind of person and I've very much leaned on the masculine side of things. But as I've hit middle age and start to uh, walk down the other side of the hill, as it were, uh, I'm starting to embrace more the messiness uh, of, of the female side of ourselves and the fact that there's a non-linearity there as well. Have you faced any challenges for being a woman? There are none that spring readily to mind. Yeah. I grew up in a really large family of extended cousins, aunts and uncles. I grew up with three brothers. I really appreciate the masculine side. And I feel like I've been very fortunate in life. I've chosen a profession where I feel valued, like I have a voice, yeah. but I have many friends who are in professions which are male dominated and have really struggled and yeah. have hit either the glass ceiling or, you know, the glass cliff in, in some cases. Yeah. Uh, but to the fact there's nothing really that immediately springs to mind. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? I guess I'm going back to power. So mm, I think right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's understanding that we can control only three things in life, what we think, what we say, and what we do. And that gives us tremendous freedom if we choose to take it. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm mindful, you know, as I'm getting older of reminding myself of that, that you are free. And to know that if I don't like something, by not choosing something different, then I'm actively making the choice to keep doing it, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so it's the capacity to act, I guess, really, for me. So how did you become a writer? I believe whenever I was doing my postgraduate work, and it was a, a course called Educating for the Unknown. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did my graduate work somewhat later in life. I was in my early 30s at that point. And I remember in that class, we were given multiple opportunities to submit drafts of papers. And that was the first time that I'd ever experienced that. You know, historically, you write the paper, you get the grade. You don't even look at the comments. You just see, was it an A or not? And then you move on to the next thing. So this was novel getting feedback on, on writing. And... I remember for that class, we also had the Shrunken White uh, volume as as a read. And I, f I, I really feel like that class helped me be a better writer. The feedback was so helpful and really formative for me. And then I think I also started to notice who are the writers that I really love to read. And why do I love to read them? And it was a combination of 
their style, but also really trying to be to almost view it as you know if you had to pay for each word is each word is it useful does it add anything or am i just you know is this a ten dollar word when a <laughs> when a simpler word would be would be even more powerful right and what was the inspiration julie you know so your intention of writing your book the human side of changing education so the inspiration was uh, visiting many different schools and seeing what is possible and i had a great uh, a great mentor uh, still a wonderful man called arthur levine and i had done some work for him uh, whenever he was at the woodrow wilson foundation a research report and he said i think you might have a book here mm-hmm. and i'd always thought i would write a book and never quite plucked up the courage uh, but it's a classic case i think I talk about in the book, The Hero's Journey, and you've got that call to adventure and then the meeting of the mentor. And I'd had the call for some time to write a book, but I think it really took Arthur saying, you know, I think you could do this. And sometimes all it takes is somebody else outside of your own head to say, you know, I think you could do this. And and I respect Arthur so much. I really thought, wow, well, if Arthur thinks I can, then maybe I can. So then I started the process. The beginning of your book, the one of the first uh, quotes you have there, it's uh, an interesting one. You say, the core of change is learning, which is ironic. Our institutions of learning are slow. Some might even say immune to change. Talk to me about that. Sure. So I, there's this great irony, I think, that... Uh, schools ideally uh, and are, are positioned as institutions of learning too often though they are institutions of knowing so the goal is to have the right answer uh, not necessarily to have a question you know in, in too many examples the worst thing that a, a student could say in response to a teacher's question is i don't know uh, the the general sense is that, that you should always have the answer and it's a system built on compliance consumption and control and risk mitigation and predictability and i want to be clear i am i i am not bashing teachers in any way shape or form teachers do extraordinary work uh, you know, a number of my friends who are teachers uh, what teachers have to put up with uh, because of this system. It's the system, uh, a system that was designed you know, to have the teacher as the deliverer of the content. And then we very much doubled down on that with no child left behind and the increase in standardized testing, which is basically stripping teachers of their autonomy. And I, I still remember so clearly I was uh, taking Elner Duckworth's course on the having of wonderful ideas, a beautiful course, and she studied with Piaget back in the day. And it was a, an inquiry-based class, and it was it was so rich, and the learning was so deep. And I still remember there was a woman in that class, and we were debriefing what we were taking away, and she was in tears. And she shared that she was a, a teacher in the local public school system, and she just knew that if she approached her classes in this way, the way that we were learning, uh, she would really 
you know, the kids would come alive. But she said, I am held to standards. I am held to, and, and she just listed, you know, the, the system constraints that she's in. And so many teachers are facing that. So teachers aren't really being invited uh, to help kids learn. They're being told to help kids pass standardized tests. Is it connected to the patriarchal model of education, Julie? Uh, yes. So you know, it's it's a patriarchal hierarchical yeah. model where yeah. you know you get your quote orders, you know, from the top, and that that's how things are disseminated. Yeah. And there there is great work happening in many different schools where superintendents, heads of schools, principals are really distributing the leadership. Uh, really wanting to uh, bring all voices and have much more autonomy at all levels in the system. The challenge is those standardized tests are such an incredible forcing function. Uh, and the fact that if a, if a school or a district, district says they want to really embrace a very different vision of pedagogy and curriculum uh, for their kids, if you're going to move from the standardized hierarchical model to one that's much more flexible uh, and much more oriented towards the 21st century, that change process can take anywhere from five to seven years. And that's a lot to ask of a parent body to hold that container for that district while they go through all of the messiness of that change. And, and I get it. You know, I've come to motherhood Late in life, I'm 46, I have a three-year-old, and I think about this, the high school that he might go into. And I'm thinking now, well, if there's anything I can, you know, I want to learn more about it because right. a lot could change, you know, in the next 10 years. A lot will change in the next 10 years, and I wonder, you know, will the local system keep up with it or, or ahead of it? One of the questions I ask myself a lot of times, why do we resist to change even though we know that change will be the best for us. So I think it's because change is unknown. We are stepping from out from what we know uh, to an area that we don't know. And I go back to David Rock, who's done a lot of great work in neuroscience and leadership, and he has a model called the SCARF model. S stands for status, C stands for certainty, a for autonomy, R for relatedness, and F for fairness. So if I'm going, th if a system's going through change, my status is, is threatened. So if I'm a department head and you're saying we're, we're going to embark on an interdisciplinary curriculum, you know, what does that mean for me and, you know, and for my department? The C for certainty, well, that's self-explanatory. That goes out the window. We're all experiencing that right now. High levels of, in some cases, debilitating uncertainty. Relatedness, sorry, autonomy, uh, going through change, uh, I, I'm, I perceive that my autonomy is being taken away from me, which may or may not uh, be the case. Uh, R is for relatedness. You know, we are tribe seeking people. You know, are you with me? Are you for me, against me? You know, it goes back to uh, being cave people. Uh, if you didn't have folks with you, you were lunch, literally. So that's, that goes deep uh, in the amygdala. And then F for fairness, you know, we're wired, you know, you know, as kids, 
does he does your brother or sister get a bigger slice than you did? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How is this being uh, divvied up here? Uh, so I, I like that model because it helps. I think unpack you know, this is the human reality of what we're going through, and uh, change is deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Have you found a um, a way, a method, or a lifestyle that's open to change? Uh, yes, I've gone through a lot of um, <laughs> changes in my life, and I I've gotten better at really getting quiet and listening to my own internal barometer. Mm. So, whenever I'm feeling bad, you know, is it fear? You know, am I making this decision through fear or through faith? Right. Mm. And yes, there's good fear and there's realistic fear and there's you know it's, it's mm. good and it's healthy. You know, right. to think true. it's true, and true. not to make not to take crazy risks. True. Uh, and it's good to have a check: Am I doing this out of fear? Whenever this other path was scary, that's a faith-based one. So it's it's interesting to look at it through those those lenses. There's a part in your book that you talk about how you became an agent of your own learning process or learning in general. How do we do that? How did you do it and how do we learn to become an agent of our own learning? Mm. Well, again, ideally the education system would help us with this. Right, true. <laughs> and I think you know, I was 23 uh, before I think I really started to understand this. I remember I had two different job offers and I couldn't decide which one to take. And a mentor said to me, okay, well, Julie, just set both of those offers aside for a moment. What do you want? And I remember sitting there in his office in the chair, sort of staring out of the space like a deer in the headlights thinking, I've no idea. I've never asked myself that question. (laughs) For too many of us, we... uh, we enter the education system and you can go on autopilot. You know, you're told you know, to pass your tests and exams, you know, go to college. And you can find yourself on a train going 100 miles an hour without actually having any sort of self-direction in your learning that the whole, the whole time. And I'm reminded, uh, reminded of, there's a great uh, class at Stanford called Designing Your Life. And... They have a book and a a workshop and all that good stuff. And it came out of the fact that the professors had noticed the graduating class didn't know what to do after Stanford. And you could understand that these young adults, you know, all their life, you know, either get to Stanford, get to Ivy League, whatever it was. And once you've got it and once you're there, then what? Mm. So I'm coming, for me, learning an agency go hand in hand. Do you believe we all have a purpose in this lifetime? I do, yes. Have you found yours? I believe I have. Uh, sometimes the layers of it reveal yeah. itself to me. Right. <laughs> True. What do you think is the purpose of your life at this time? So at this time, uh, I believe it's to help unlock the potential in other people. So I, I work in education. I also work in industry as well. Uh, the thread that is woven throughout is leadership coaching. So I believe leadership is an act, not a title or a position. Mm-hmm. And the 
you know, what I what I see time and time again is vast majority of people on the planet are not tapping into anything approaching their potential. Right. True. And I'm on a mission to help help unleash that in whatever small way I can and that happens in the one-on-one conversations whenever I'm coaching folks and then also the work that uh, I do shining a light on good work and really inspirational work in education as well I, I think and I would love to see in my lifetime the next generation leapfrogging mm-hmm. us because mm-hmm. we, we need a raise in consciousness yeah. and so much within the education system I think keeps that locked in true how do we know Julie when we have found our purpose when we are on that path so I it's not this you know super easy you know autobahn go 200 miles an hour Mm -hmm. uh, freeway I think it's equal parts you know dusty roads and lack of certainty and so forth but there is there is something that brings you alive Mm. so what brings you alive in a really deep deep way and what is worth the struggle talk to me for a moment about the um, chapter one so the question there are four questions based on the course that you um, mentioned earlier, it's in your book, Educating for the Unknown. That course you wrote in your book was based on four questions. So what is worth learning? One, then how is it best learned? Then how can we get it taught that way? And then the last question is, how do we know it has been taught? So chapter one, you have the what is worth learning and then you have worthy skill one two three four eight eight of them would you like to briefly talk about these worthy skills sure so the the worthy skills again this came out of that uh course by david perkins on educating for the unknown and i remember sketching out on a piece of paper what do i think are the the worthy skills and this came out of 15 years working with adults one-on-one in leadership development workshops also with uh, adults leading change at a small and and, and large-scale level and the, these just kept coming up for me time and time again so creativity and innovation planning adaptability and agility the ability to to plan and then the ability to throw that plan out <laughs> whenever the terrain differs uh, being strength awareness, so first of all, knowing that there's something you're really good at, that you have these strengths and how you approach your life and your work, and then secondly, putting them into action. Uh, global citizenship, uh, I would amplify that now to global advocacy. Uh, relationship building, and then critical thinking, problem solving. I think there are two pieces here, which are additional skills, which are core to the rest, which are self-efficacy and self-directed learning. Are they in order, as you have in your book, worthy skill one, two, or it doesn't have an order and doesn't really matter? All of them are equally important. Yeah, they don't. They don't have an order. But when I look at them in aggregate, and I go back to the question of you know, is, 
is it possible to design and build and live a life of your own choosing, regardless of demography? I think self-efficacy is at the core of that. Because I could be self-directed and I could be creativity, I could be creative, I could do the plan, etc. And I could do all of that. But if I see there's something else over here that I would like to do, and I don't believe that I have that in me, then I'm not going to do it. Then you're not tapping into your potential. So I, I guess the self-efficacy and the potential I see going hand in hand. So we're almost at the end. You know, you have uh, chapter three, five success factors for change. That's a very important and interesting chapter. Your entire book is just incredibly uh, well-written and helpful to all of us, not just educators and leaders of education and parents, but everyone can learn from that. I'm learning. I have to go back to it. Chapter five, uh, leading yourself through change, the hero's journey, of course, yeah, incredibly helpful. And boy, we always go back to that. It's interesting over and over again. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? I think I'm going through it right now and it's being a parent. <laughs> I think it's going to be, you know, if, you know, if mother nature is good to me and, you know, and, and, and to my son, I think this is going to be <laughs> another, you know, 30, 40 years uh, of, uh, of learning this lesson. I, I think, you know, I, I thought I knew how to be in the world and then I have a, and then I have a son and the, the lessons that he provides me uh, every day, some are completely joy filled mm-hmm. and some are amongst the hardest, but I think being a mother trying to find it, Everything else kind of pales in comparison to that right now. What is another word for success, Julie? Another word for success. Well, when you say that word, I think fulfillment. Uh, Success, I think, is a very sort of glitzy, you know, 1980s, you know, big house, big car, you know, fancy clothes, all of that. Uh, and, And I think we're being invited to think about that in a different way. And I think fulfillment is what I'm shooting for right now. And I think if we pause several times on a daily basis, it's, it's, it's waiting there for us. Yeah. So it's, it's already here. And two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Uh, when you say soon, what's the time frame? <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Good question. <laughs> I, have I have a day. <laughs> so enough yeah, to start to think about deeper about the meaning of life, I guess. Mm. Well, well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think of if I had a day, you know, I would walk away from this computer and I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go near it for the next day. <laughs> I would literally, you know, sit with my family. That's that's what I would do for a day. If I had a year, I would look at how much there is in the bank account and then, you know, make a bunch of very different decisions from there. If I knew I had six months, again, that would be a different calculation. Um, I, I guess that's part of the, the challenge, uh, which is none of us know how long we have, so... Now you've got my gears thinking. 
<laughs> That's true. So I, I like the time you gave about a day. Okay, we only have a day to live. But that's not, in a way, it's just not realistic, right? Oh, I won't work anymore. I'll just stop everything, stay with my family. Then it sounds like there's no balance anymore. You're doing one thing um, out exactly. of fear, um, most yeah. likely. I don't, I don't think they'd like me to do that for a full year. Why are you still <laughs> Go to another room, please. <laughs> right, right. So it depends, yeah. Wow, life is, uh, wow, like human beings, ourselves, we are complex, yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? That I need to take things a lot, uh, a lot less seriously than what I often do. <laughs> uh, that... There is profound love within us and around us if we choose to see it. And, and back to one of your earlier questions, I know that each of us has a purpose and that and there is something within us that will bring us truly alive. And that's why we're here. So thank you so much for your beautiful, peaceful presence, your mission, your purpose in this lifetime, your lovely work your wisdom. Thank you, Julie. I do have one more question for you, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Sure. So if you go to the website, which is the T-H-E hyphen I-F-L dot org, that's, that's the website. And I'm on, uh, on Twitter uh, at Julie Margreta, M-A-R-G-R-E-T-T-A. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. So go ahead and search for Judy Wilson, Boston area, and I will come up for the search. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for having me, Valeria. Bye for now, Julie. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Julie M. Wilson and her work, please visit v-ifl.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.